the caricatures do, those are the things that break through. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't tell you how many times something bad has happened to me. And in the back of my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, why did Adam have to eat the apple? Reducing it to something that simplistic. Construct a little bit about how our modern world has arrived at some of the assumptions about what happened in Eden, and maybe a little bit of the history of how that narrative has shaped Christians throughout generations. Matt, tell us a little bit about your vision regarding the Eden story and kind of how we arrived there. We come from a Reformed background, so Presbyterian, but we've been around the evangelical block. I started researching, due to my apologetic interests, the Orthodox Church. It was uh, this idea that in the Eastern churches, they didn't believe in original sin. Coming from a Calvinistic background, well, what what do you believe in? It made no sense. I, I'm really just, I'm not really interested in Orthodoxy at this point. I'm trying to refute it, actually, because I'd never heard of it. I'm already on the lookout for for how to engage with uh, Christian ideas that I think are false. And the explanation that's given is that uh, death and Satan are actually the causes of depravity and for why we do bad things. It took me weeks and weeks and weeks of thinking to, to try to see if that was even plausible. Like it was just a test. Like, is there, is this a, it was a plausibility test that was worked out over a long period of time. I, it started to hit me eventually that these were better explanations for for why we do what we do than that we were born that way we know that uh, a lot of the people that listen are not going to be coming from a reformed background at least you don't think you are can we define just real basically reformed it's the thoughts and ideas and the beliefs that develop at the time of the reformation in response to medieval Catholicism. Most people know uh, the time of the reformers. Uh, at that time, it's like Babylon in, in Rome. It's, it's degradation and it's excess and it's messed up. It's worse than when Jesus cleans out the temple. Way worse than that. In response to the teachings of Rome, a new soteriology, a new salvation message is sort of developed. It's not totally new. Uh, it's just that the role of the will is established. The role of works and grace gets hammered out in such a way that these uh, concepts are going to flow into Europe, into, into America when it's colonized, and around the world. I mean, because we send missionaries all over the place. Everybody has this idea that they need to be saved. We know that something's wrong. And almost every culture has a different story about how to deal and cope with that. So the, the dichotomy that we're talking about here is this legal concept of original sin, which has roots in Augustine, right? Right. Which is this purely legal, almost purely legal idea that's passed on genetically. So this legal problem that's passed on genetically. Lawbreakers, lawbreaking equals death. Mm -hmm. covenants are established, covenants are broken, God upholds all the covenants, versus what you're talking about, set that stage a little bit better. So we have the legal original sin issue that leads to death. When you first, I think it was the last time you spoke, spoke of original sin as legal, I'd actually never thought of it that way. But I... You're right. It is legal. It's legal in the sense that it's a, a decree, a, a sentencing on humanity based on a violation of a law of the prohibition to eat. 
from from the tree. Yeah, it becomes a, a legal framework. Some people get so down on legal language that they ditch it all together. That's not the goal here. It's that when you're declared guilty or declared innocent or declared, you kind of, you kind of lose ontology in the process. Instead of what you are, it's what you are declared to be. What you're declared to be is sin. After Adam falls, he and all his descendants are sin, in a sense. I mean, they, well, they are. Like, that's who they are at the core. They're sinners, but they are sin. And we don't want to chuck the legal language. The legal language 100% has a role in the, in the Christian story of salvation. My contention is that the legal aspect is overplayed and that the orthodox view of man avoiding death and some of the implications of that in the, in the biblical narrative as a whole have been downplayed in favor of a primarily legal narrative. As we all know, legal language is important in our daily lives even now. It was, it was important in the biblical story, and it, but we run the risk of thinking almost exclusively from a legal framework, and that really leaves a lot of the narrative in the dust. My goal would be to balance balance the two mm -hmm. out because when I've tried to balance the two out in my own mind over time, I find myself drawn closer and closer to, to Christ mm -hmm. and that emotion that I've that many people downplay in their Christian lives is all of a sudden amplified because that emotional aspect of love and what Christ had to do to redeem his people is now not just legal theory, but it's legal balanced with emotion. Hmm. Emotion is okay. You have to have both in a marriage, it's, which is a perfect example, right? You have yeah. a legal bind, yeah. but you also have this deeply emotional physical connection. The physical, the emotional is downplayed in systematic theology, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Yeah. And I, you know, my opinion doesn't mean jack, really, but I do think the physical and emotional deep deeply enmeshed part of the biblical narrative gets downplayed. And I think a lot of evangelicals in America agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, Christ, Christ loves us. And so he comes. Systematic theology, uh, or back to your marriage thing. The legal part of the marriage is to establish the marriage. It's to support it. It's not... It doesn't make up the marriage. It's the recognition that two people have willed to covenant together in a exclusive sense for life. It's interesting in like an Orthodox wedding. They're there to recognize and to bless the intentions of the couple. So I guess what I'm getting at is the legal language in the Bible is there to establish the reality of something but it's not the reality. It's to support the reality or to, or to, to frame in the reality, to, to fence it maybe, to protect it, to give assurance that, that this pattern, this uh, way of life and existence is good. So, so when Adam's told not to eat, is this a law, an extension of God in a comprehensible form? Or is it is this more about who Adam is to be? Is God trying to actually get Adam to be a certain type of a person? Or is he expecting Adam to, to obey a law? And, and like, where's that law come from? I mean, there's really nothing technically good or bad about this tree in the Bible, except for that it's going to open the knowledge, open the door to the knowledge of sin. But I mean, a tree's a tree. The tree obviously represents much more than food, but if you think of it as a law, then God actually created the law by creating the prohibition of the tree and everything. If God sort of, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but like it almost makes it, well, does God have these laws he has to obey and then he passes them to us? Are they arbitrary? Are they simply loyalty tests? Yeah, you, you start thinking... Yeah, it starts looking very confusing. Well, and the problem is, if it's a test, 
Is it arbitrary? Or is it aimed at a goal? Yes. That's very much the... The story seems arbitrary to the average person who's not enmeshed in the the biblical story. Atheists mock what seems to be arbitrary. And we don't necessarily care or, or feel bad about what atheists think about our faith. But they mock it openly and they laugh at it. Because it seems so arbitrary. We know it's not. Yeah. But why? Why Why does it come off as so arbitrary? Part of it is we inherit these stories in the Sunday school sense. Mm-hmm. And really they st- sort of stay that way. We don't realize how sophisticated these stories are. 100%. Yeah. And so we we read them in the, in the most, again, like cartoonish. They're just easy to mock. Mm-hmm. They're easy to pick apart. But the thing that really makes it make the least sense is that when you start this idea of Eden as perfection, this is practically heaven. This is like everything, everything was ever meant to be. And if you take that view of the garden of Adam, then that's part of why it makes makes it look arbitrary. Because if you're already perfect, like where's the need get better or what why do i need to follow rules i'm already perfect i don't need rules there's there's all these weird why is it even there i'm already perfect again it's this forced notion into genesis that the original humans and all of creation and all of the earth was edenic in the heaven sense it's reached its goal its end and so then when you introduce a temptation, you don't even understand, how is, how is anything tempting? It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Then it makes God look like he created the temptation. Mm-hmm. And it starts raising all these questions. Then you have all of a sudden, you got the devil. So did God do it? Is this another one of your... What's the point in testing someone if they're perfect? You already know how that they're going to pass. Mm-hmm. Somehow Adam doesn't pass. There's the mystery in Western theology, the biggest one of all. It's not actually there in the Bible. It's perfection. And then it just makes the whole story. Perfection is the modern person thinks of perfection. Perfect comfort. All my needs are met. I don't have to think about anything. I'm not really created to do anything other than relax. That is 100% the assumptions that the modern reader imports into the Genesis narrative. Did you ever watch Wally, the Mm -hmm. Disney movie? I never watched it until a while ago, and I'm man, this is sort of, this is how that backfires. You become fat and ride around on robots, and you're a loser. Yeah, I mean, Eden is usually seen as this perpetual, euphoric experience without any stress. We've talked about this before. I, I can't help in my imagination. I have to correct it intentionally to see Eden as some sort of Caribbean, Hawaiian, some sort of tropical location where there's never a hurricane, there's plenty of food, and I'm happy. And and really all I'm, all I'm describing is a stress-free environment. So if that's not what Eden is, how would, how would the ancient reader comprehend the basic context of Genesis 1 through 3? First thing I always try to reemphasize anybody reading the Old Testament, especially Pentateuch, is that when was it written? I mean, I'm not asking for a date. I'm saying, what was the occasion for writing it? And it's that they came out of Egypt. They're in slavery in Egypt. They're in slavery really to the ideas of Egypt, to to their gods and to their theology. And Moses is writing an account in large part to correct their imagination. Correct so, the imagination. That's a big idea. You see, like early on in Genesis, or in uh, you know in Exodus, that um, the Egyptian lifestyle is such a draw that you're willing after after deliverance go right back into. I'll do what I gotta do. I'll I'll, I'll go back to Baal, and we'll have this giant. Um, really nasty party for Baal so I can get back to my old lifestyle in Egypt, which is an ease. Freedom comes with responsibility is what that implies. 
freedom comes with a responsibility to reality almost. God is ultimate reality. And they had lost, they had been enslaved to a, an alternate version of reality that pulls them away from God, which is ultimately the goal of this anti-God figure yeah. that appears as a serpent. So Moses is correcting the imagination through inspiration. So what would you want the people to know? If you, if you just think, if you think on that level, a lot of the controversies about Genesis, you can at least relax a little. Because what's the big thing that the people need to hear once they just passed through the city? It's that, like, I'm not like those gods. You're not going to live like you are underneath one of them. And... And here's how to here's how to navigate with the story. So that doesn't mean it's not literal or not true, but that's the main intention. Mm -hmm. If you think of Jonah, people are like, was it like a, a giant whale? Was it a fish we had never discovered? What's the point of the book? What's of the Jonah? point of the story, as the opposed point. to what are the scientific merits? Exactly, of the and that's what most people do. Like, I'm not saying that the Bible is a literary fictional work. I'm just right. saying, if God is intending to to create a new people that were once enslaved to what the New Testament writers would call demons, at least ideas that are propagated by the demonic, then how how do you do that? And and then so the story of Jonah is really the big part of Jonah. Is God has a heart for the nations. And some people are super reluctant to do that work. And he's going to get it done with them in spite of them. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, I can get that. I don't really care now about the stinking fish. I mean, it's like, I really don't care. You're not trying to match up details from the biblical narrative to a modern scientific understanding. Either way. Great. Mm -hmm. But the point is, God has a heart for Nineveh, and he invites you into the... Anyway, that's the point. But you go back to Genesis, the point is, God's hovering over the waters, the Spirit's hovering over the waters. The, the waters are the source of, a source of chaos in the other creation myths. In this, this instance, it's like, a, it's like a bird on the beach. There's no chaos. It's order. When you get the flood story, I don't know how many times I've heard somebody, uh, to me, not that intelligent, compare it to, oh, that's just a ripoff of Gilbert, Gilbert right. Epic and Mike. I've heard Wait, that many well, times. why don't you just compare the two? Right. If you did, you'd see, it's not ripping it off, it's correcting it. They all have the same story. And they're all mythological in the sense that when you attach a or the words really like mythic history. Yeah, a lot of people don't know how to define myth because myth doesn't mean something that's not true. If I, if I, on my way here tonight, if I almost hit a deer and my radio suddenly popped on and I ascribed that to God, that would be mythic history because I ascribed or I understood there to have been a supernatural intervention to, you know, save me or whatever. Sure. But in the other myths, the story is not made up. The difference between the Bible and these other stories is that you falsely ascribed to a god or to a demon something that only is proper to Yahweh. And what do you do? Do you, do you come up with a brand new story? No, you tell it right. Mm -hmm. When you're with your, with your family and you're around a group and somebody's like, yeah, this is what happened way back when. And somebody else chimes in and says, that is not what happened at all. What are you talking about? It's not that the whole story is a lie or that like, somebody fabricated it in the middle of plagiarized from each other. Grandpa's plagiarizing me again. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like no, it, that's a real story. Everybody agrees that something happened. The dispute is around particular details and the motives behind those details of the of the players involved. So Genesis is about establishing a new people mm -hmm. out of out of Egypt. Mm -hmm. And it happens through the most the most significant event in the Old Testament is the Passover. Or or the Red Sea crossing. Mm -hmm. I mean, without this you see through the chaos. Yeah, and uh, I mean this is what establishes 
it's it's the hallmark event. And then in the New Testament, not surprisingly, Pascha or Easter is the hallmark event. And it's the same analogically, but it's bigger. So let's circle back. We started talking about legal, the legal implications of the Augustinian view of original sin. If we're not going to look at Eden through a purely legal lens, what other lens ought we to direct at the Eden story as it pertains to the role of death and why Adam and Eve did what they did in the story? If you if you read this from the Orthodox perspective, which it's not a new perspective, it's old. Mm-hmm. So it was Augustine's perspective, but his perspective develops in a controversy with British monk Pelagius. There's a debate over over man's role in salvation. Pelagius takes the view that because of the work of Christ, man does not need the assistance of divine aid. He's pretty much good now. He's got all the faculty and equipment. And because of Christ. Yes. Yes. A lot of times people weave that out mm. about him. Mm-hmm. And so there is a logic to it. But in the debate with uh, St. Augustine, they're both trying to grapple with, well, how does this work with baptism? Why do we baptize people then and children especially? Through it, the doctrine of original sin is developed. Okay. Uh, I mean, obviously, through Scripture, there is a there's a theme of transference, or at least transference of the effects of sin, generation by generation, mm-hmm. and we all know it to be true. Yeah. The sins of the fathers and the sins of your mother, and everybody is affected by sin. Nothing we do that doesn't really touch somebody else somehow, and a lot of times the things we don't do that, that are sin that make us sort of liable there. They have to answer the question of why they're baptizing children. And for Augustine, it's it's that you're removing the stain of original sins. That has been the traditional Western view ever since. And by the time you get to the Reformation, it's practically a debate between the Reformers and the Catholic Church at the time about who understands Augustine correctly. Hmm. And they're, they're just at odds over this. Because I think you and I, coming from a Reformed background, and I still side with them, if, you, if that was true, if original sin was true, then you should end up with a salvation story that the Reformed still carry to this day. I mean, it's just logic. If you're going to start with the presupposition that people are born evil and that the only way out is that God picks them, mm-hmm. And he doesn't pick everybody, so he picks them and he picks the others for damnation. Or the way that they get around sometimes is he passes over the the others. I'm like, well, and you can't resist it. You can't resist the choice. Once that system is set up, the reformers streamline the logic, and and you get eventually what we know as the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, the Baptists, and then today. Most people who are evangelical, I don't believe, just based on experience, and I could be wrong, but I, I think, and maybe you could speak to this, I don't think the average evangelical knows they came out of the Reformation. The average evangelical child um, assumes that what they're told is the way things are, and that's fine, that's how all children are. This is the way things that are, because this is... This is the Bible. This is what the Bible presented says. to you. This is what the Bible yeah. says. Adam was given uh, the option. The tree was placed in the garden. Adam followed his wife, who took the fruit first. She sinned. She gave some to her husband. He sinned. They were exiled from the garden. The angels were guarding it with the flaming swords. And that's pretty much the story. And so your little child mind is left to draw conclusions. And the conclusions that you draw about God are going to lead you into this idea that God loves me, but he has this really strange test that, I, that my, my ancestor failed. And but that you failed, too. That I failed, too. Uh, and not just uh, 
experientially in yourself, but that there's this corporate bond mm -hmm. between the two of you to where when Adam sinned, you <clears throat> sinned because genetically you're winged. Correct. It's almost like there's no differentiation between Adam's will and your will. Because you hear the nation's like, well, if it had been you in the garden, you wouldn't have done any better. You wouldn't have done any better. Well, maybe that's true. Right. That's fine. I'm not right. saying I would have. I'm just saying you're not making a distinction between the two of us anymore. Right. Right. And, and that's really what has to happen. The more I think about this, and I'm further into thinking about it for you know several years now, so it might sound like I'm reacting. Is there a difference between me and Adam? Are we the same person? I, I get that humanity is linked. We're all family. Mm -hmm. We all have a common origin. But, but to not make a distinction is to collapse us into the same person. Well, it's to systematize. So which brings us back to this idea, what, what's the alternative to a purely original sin understanding? Clearly, Adam did something. Clearly, Adam took the fruit. He was the man. He was responsible for what happened in the garden. And the outcomes of that are almost purely legal in our modern world in the sense that we, we know that we're damned and that we need a savior. And this leads into the modern presentation of the, of the, gospel. the Christian gospel. And you need to get saved. You need to get saved. Everybody needs to get saved. Again, I don't reject that. No, we need salvation. We have respect for that. We love it. It's, it's our, it's like, what, what does it mean? What does it mean? Yeah. Yeah. I need to be saved. I'm yes, not I do too. That. I am a sinner. 100% a sinner. Yes. It means Christ. Yeah. I'm confused on some of the details. I'm not rejecting any orthodoxy that I see in Creed, the Apostles' Creed. The salvation that is presented to us, if you think of it, I don't know how many people probably heard this exact same analogy, but it, you broke the law. Christ comes to take your punishment. And it's always in the court. Christ is going to judge the world. But in the scenario, it is like, it's funny, it's not funny, but if you think to Matthew, where the separation of the goats and the sheep is taking place at the last judgment, there's no mention of anything wrong, sinful, anybody did. Well, there is, but it's not in the way that you expect. To the people who did it for the least of these, and they don't even know that they did it, they're welcomed. The people who did not love and did not care and did not... It's not like they said, hey, you're a goat because you're a really nasty person. You do, you do some funky... And it's really on the basis of love. So the judgment is on... It's on the basis of love or not. In that case, the courtroom analogy that we're used to, anyway, doesn't make a lot of sense. Why am I here? Well, you're here because you don't love people. And, okay, so so you're going to take my place to love people. That kind of breaks down. Like, you, if you stick with the analogy of the legal crime, like, I transgressed this commandment, I, I went against it, I broke it, then... Yeah, you can kind of see how it would work uh, logically to have somebody take your punishment. Mm -hmm. But that's not actually how the judgment's presented. And same with, same with Paul when he's thinking of, of whether or not you ran the race well. And 1 Corinthians, a love chapter. The greatest of these is love. And anything else is a waste of time. It's mm -hmm. going to get burned. Hopefully our works, the things we do, don't totally incinerate. And yet, St. Paul is, balances out that with, there is legal language in Roman, yeah. Romans, for example. All of, all of Romans 1 is um, setting up the dichotomy of this is what you should have done, this is what you're actually doing. So setting up the law, the breakage of the law. So that is where a lot of our legal framing of the New Testament I yeah. comes from. Which is true. Again, we're not rejecting legal. We're, what we're trying to understand is, is there more to it than the legal stuff? Which is why I keep trying to bring us back yeah. to what's the alternative to original sin in the garden? We're both parents. I've got three kids. Mm -hmm. Adam? I have five. 
neither one of us, I don't think, have ever made up a rule for our kids just to see if they'd fail at it. I haven't, yeah. I mean, I've never even done the marshmallow test or anything, where you, like, stick a marshmallow in front of the room. It's a scientific it. study. Though. It is, it is. And it's very much a temptation study. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch. It's cute. It's also kind of creepy. But you think about it, generally speaking, I haven't even done that. Like, I, I would never do that. Like, I wouldn't, or not the marshmallow, just make up, make up things to see if they fail. Mm-hmm. What do you do when your kids actually do something wrong? Do you go to them and say, look, you've, you've transgressed this law a minute. You know, you cannot, <laughs> you cannot put cups on the left side of the top rack of the dishwasher. That's, that's I'm, evil. I'm, la- I'm laughing because it's, that is how the story comes across know, in a modern presentation to a child. That's how I interpret it. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying I was right as a kid to hear it that way. I'm not saying people had ill intent to try and tell the story that way. I'm simply saying that something is missing because of what you just said. You don't go up to your children with arbitrary laws that to, to test their loyalty to you or some weird... And they kick them out of the house you're <laughs> if you they break it. as a parent, doesn't depend on your child's lawlessness. The eviction from Eden yeah. with angels of flames of swords that you can't get back in. You're, and you think, okay, if if that situation is analogous to this arbitrary rules a parent mm-hmm. might make up. I mean, I mean if, if we actually knew parents who made up these rules, we'd think... We would think they were nuts. We would not think they loved their child. No, we think the kid was probably getting abused. Correct. At least psychologically. So yeah, I think it's a, a it's a gut response. Adam and I are both very familiar with evangelical world because we grew up in it. Later, it led us to Reformed Christianity, and Reformed Christianity, oddly enough, led me further down the road to Orthodoxy. My kids go to an evangelical school. Yesterday, I'm asked by my son to help. This is from Bob Jones hmm. University. From the evangelical. Yeah, and I mean, University. and they put out a lot of home, homeschool material and, all, and also, you know, just curriculum. He asked me to answer this question. What does sin always promise? What is its result instead? But here's the question that he didn't ask me. Why does it seem unlikely that Adam and Eve would have disobeyed God if Satan hadn't been there to tempt them? But before that, it says, it seems like a very unlikely thing to do that a perfect creature would, would sin. Right. This is from the textbook. Now, anybody who's asked that question, how does a perfect creature sin? Um, the answer is going to be, we don't think and know. It does seem very unlikely that a perfect creation could sin, would sin. It doesn't matter that the devil's there. Um, engage the serpent. It doesn't seem odd. Like we, we can't no, exactly. Help, we can't help but notice that Eve's not like, oh, we're talking animal. Yeah, exactly. That's weird. See, this is where the, the naive... Let, let, me, let me try something. There, there are things in our home that are meant for human flourishing. That our kids simply can't use yet. And so we protect them from it. And we tell them, you can't right. go near that. You're exactly right. You can't go near that. Well, why, Dad? Like a car. <laughs> like a car. They know we can use it for good. And they want to do it. Yeah. They can't because they're not ready yet. Exactly. That's the idea. That's what's happening in Genesis. God knows the difference between good and evil, he's not evil. Instead of that, it's that they do know it. They know it experientially. And to know something, the Hebrew sense is experientially know it by doing it. It's like knowing your wife is an intimate thing. It's not a, I know about her a little. To know evil is to do evil. And it, the car analogy is not perfect. But there's no reason to think that this tree was going to be off limits forever. Correct. That was my, That's what I was getting at. That it's something that, when you assume that they were not perfect, that all makes sense. Exactly. That's like, I don't think my kids are perfect. I do think they're very good. You love them. If holding your newborn, I would kill for you. Mm-hmm. 
I would give my life for you. I'm looking at you. I love you. I think you're beautiful and so forth. I don't think you're perfect, though. Right. But I do think you're very good. Man, that's that's huge. That's huge. Even just this past five minutes or so, we've hit on the idea that place that humans are put is for a greater purpose. There are things there. We know of one, for sure, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was off limits. We don't know exactly why, but we can kind of understand that it's very reasonable yeah, to assume a, that this wasn't just some arbitrary test. It was a, it was, it was, it's a waiting. It's a waiting. It's that there, it was part of a grander place. Mm-hmm. That that's what it symbolizes. If, if it's not the actual thing, that's what it symbolizes. Well, either way, it means the same thing. And they're obviously living in a place with God, a home, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And this tree is here. It's got a purpose. We don't know what it is. But maybe it's maybe there's something planned for it. Yeah, it's interesting because you think this tree is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. The evil tree. I know, I know. Yeah. It's like it's like in the middle of a um, of a fairy tale horror yes. moment. Oh, here's the poison apple. Thanks so much. <laughs> if you just stick yourself in this say forest mm-hmm. and there's different trees to eat from and then there's this one tree and it says they're walking mm-hmm. with God. Uh, cool in the morning. And I wonder, okay, we're walking together. There's that tree. Awkward moment. But if you thought of it more, okay, they're walking with Christ and the morning children. It's like, hey, can I have some of that tree? No, you know it's not. Not yet. Someday. It's a beautiful tree. But not yet. But look, you can can enjoy it with your eyes. Uh You don't have to eat it. Right. And to eat is to internalize, you know, and to experience the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. It really means that they're going to die. It doesn't mean that they're going to... They are going to face the spiritual consequences by experiencing physical death. Mm. But it's not that their spiritual death results in the inability of their will to ever do anything good. That's it's an that, important thing. Yeah. Say that, that, Say that Well, that's, that's... It's not that... It's not that... The result of their sin results in becoming unable to do anything good, which is the which is the original sin doctrine, pretty much. Mm-hmm. That's what it means. It's that they're going to have the weight of physical death literally dragging them down, literally, to the grave. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to have that against them and they didn't have it before because what they did have access to was a tree of life and they could eat of it. Mm-hmm. They weren't immortal or immortal. They were conditionally immortal. As long as you can keep eating. Right. And this stuff makes perfect sense. It does. Uh, when you think of us, you, you don't eat, you die. Correct. But as long as you can keep eating. Well, in the same way, it's, it's interesting to me, like when you get into recent studies on longevity and why we die. People are writing long books, bestsellers on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Well, technically, we don't have to die. You could take this the wrong way and become a transhumanist. Right. But, but yeah, technically, there is no... We don't have to. Mm-hmm. Transhumanists and, and doctors can imagine a world without death Absolutely. based on small, most likely small iterations to either genetics or environment or, or whatever. And everybody can look at that and say, yeah, I can imagine that future. Mm-hmm. Well, Imagine the past. Mm-hmm. Imagine that this this had this effect. Since you can imagine the cure fairly plausibly, if it was presented in a movie or in a, mm-hmm. or in a book, imagine the cause. Reshape you, your imagination. Yeah, yeah. There's, which is there's, the whole purpose of the narrative. Yeah. Going back to what you said about exactly. the and, and And really, that's the purpose of why we're doing this right now. Like, uh, absolutely. Like, we want our imaginations to reform because death comes in to the very good creation, and not the not the perfect creation, because the perfect creation technically couldn't. Instead of being like vacation paradise, it's actually resemble it actually resembles in every which way a temple. Hmm. Anybody who's familiar with the Old Testament at all ought to know where's Jerusalem? It's on a mountain. Where are all the 
mountains of the gods. I remember we're we're the Except we're the worship places. Yeah, they're all on mountains. High, yeah, you know, they're all the high places. Mm -hmm. That word is an actual geographical, topographical description. It's important for the yeah. context. You know, so Jesus goes to Mount um, Aramon, maybe. Um, when he's with the woman at the well, he says it's not going to be on this mountain or that mountain. Eden's on a mountain, actually. It's mm -hmm. not on a beach. And right. it's not Eternal Gulf and, or or whatever it is for you. It's not the Wally, the Disney movie. That's not it. Like, it's, it's very clear that God created for a purpose. He had a purpose in mind. Humans had a purpose. And he, like everything else he does, has an end in mind. Has a Has a, maybe not an end, but rather... A continual doing, a continual work, yes, for humans to do, and it's part of his glory. His glory is um, the working together of all of his creation, yeah, magnifying him, which is actually a very deep and, and beautiful concept when you when you really spend some time in contemplation about just that word glory uh, itself, which is not what we're going to do here in this moment, but. We're clearly missing something in the narrative when we assume it is all an arbitrary test in Eden and from there we are doomed to hell. And the story of the gospel is how God fixes the, the failure of the arbitrary test. At least that's how it's perceived. And I, I don't know that we're being completely fair to the evangelical perspective and it may behoove us at some point to have somebody come in and just push back openly on us while we kind of present some of these questions. And we can talk about that, but what we are is, is two are two lay people trying to figure out how this story that we've been told has affected us to this point. We're not victims. We're just we're trying to figure out what the story is actually saying and how we ought to be living. And we perceive a gap. Mm -hmm. We perceive that it's, there's more to it than we are. We are straight up doomed to hell because of a test that our forefather failed and that, that Jesus took our place. And therefore, now, if we, if we accept him in the evangelical sense, we are saved. We need salvation. Matt and I recognize that. We know that we are sinners. We're simply pointing out some things about the story, the traditional story being told that's confusing. We're trying to deconstruct it, not for the sake of renouncing our faith, no, but for the sake of understanding what the story actually says. Yeah, we're trying to deepen our faith. I, I was like anticipating what you were talking. I'm thinking somebody's got to ask, like, why do you even care? Why do you even care what Genesis means? Absolutely. And why I, but, do we care? But at the same time, I'm like, okay, to that person, I would say we ought to care because it's shaped Western culture for two thousand years, right? And you're part of that shaping. Right. You you can't avoid it. Whether you think it's relevant or not, you just have to own the fact that your stories, the stories you're brought up with, all were shaped by this narrative. Yes. About Genesis. Yes. If you don't realize that, and you ignore it all your life, and you think you understand the culture or development and ideas, you're just totally wrong. This is the cornerstone story. For the last, you know, since the rise of Christianity, well, by the time of the Reformation, it was full on. The way that the reformers would take that story and then, and then develop, and then export that same story. That's where we live, and that's that is the cultural. A lot of people think, oh, our our founders were all deists. Blah blah blah. That's mm -hmm. that's usually you know easily debunked. While there were deists, but Benjamin Franklin, the deist wanted to start a colony with the reformed Great Awakening preacher, George Whitfield. So they, even if they didn't necessarily, I mean, the, the deism of America, when you want to claim that historical heritage, well, that deism was pretty, actually, it's pretty darn Christian. Here you are, if you're American, you're a product of the Reformation, most likely, or you're a reaction to the Reformation. We're all participating in politics, whether we believe it or not. Yes, politics, politics sort of forms out of the cultural stories. Yeah. And our cultural story for the last 2,000 years has stemmed from interpretations of the Eden narrative. 
if you start with this view of, of uh, this perfected Adam and then he becomes hopelessly corrupt mm-hmm. and his will is just always by default totally doing the wrong, right. yeah, it's doing the wrong thing or, or wishing that he could do more bad right. things, but like, ah, there's always something in my way. I wish I could murder someone today, well, but I hit my toe and I can't walk. You know, and like, the Calvinist would say, that that is the default position and that God graciously restrains us. Um, yeah. And yeah, the, yeah. And the alternative, though, is God made us very good, but not perfect. Yeah. To, to kind of circle it back here. Yeah. God made us very good, but not perfect. And the caricatures do, those are the things that break through. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't tell you how many times something bad has happened to me. And in the back of my mind, I'm sitting here thinking, why did Adam have to eat the apple? Mm. And I'm reducing it to something that simplistic. And then I get confused because I don't have a good answer. And then I get frustrated mm. and I push, I push the biblical narrative away, which is exactly the thing I need to be yeah. engaging with more. And I'm left floundering because we all agree. We're coming from a bedrock assumption that the biblical narrative is tr- is truth. And if the biblical narrative is truth, we need to try and understand it appropriately but it goes back to this idea of the distinction between you and adam mm-hmm. like if there's no distinction then when you do something evil or you do something sinful in general mm-hmm. and you ask the question why did adam you're also asking the question why did i why did i right if you stop on that question and you don't have an explanation except for how does a perfect creature fail? It leads logically to the question of, did God choose to fall? Right. So God created man, chose for him to fall. Man is somehow still blameworthy. Mm-hmm. God picks and chooses who goes to hell or heaven. Right. Yet I'm still responsible. Internally, though, what's your what's your uh, train of thought in, in a situation where you're, okay, why am I doing anything? Why did I do this? Well, I'm sinful. Why am I sinful? Adam sinned. I sinned in him. Okay, why did why did this all happen? God chose it. Why did God choose it? For his glory. For his glory. Okay, right. okay. that becomes the default answer that like explains everything. Yes. I, I, mean, I don't know how many times I've heard something like, well, you know, in the night sky, the blackness of the, the universe uh, um, allows the stars to shine more brightly. Sure. Now you've set up a yin-yang situation, mm-hmm. unfortunately, and you've ascribed it to God. You need the you need the dark side for the light side to show off. Bull crap. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, bull crap. So God doesn't need anything. Is, God doesn't is, need anything. Right. Okay. Again, back to Augustine. He's having this debate with this British monk, Pelagius. And the debate is about, do you need, like, external grace from God and salvation or not? Augustine comes to the conclusion that you don't just need it. You actually contribute nothing to it. You don't work with it. it doesn't, you don't hold hands with it. you you got to hope that it's going to come for you. Actually, you won't hope that, though, ever, unless you're already elect. Otherwise, you're going to be... Had Augustine, I hate you, God. So why would you? Yeah. Had, had Augustine already drawn other Calvinistic conclusions, or are we just are we still trying to figure out total depravity at this time period? You know, by Different time terms. Saint Augustine writes the City of God. He's he's wrestling with Rome in a bad place. Mm. It's got to be a lot to take so in. So we can have obviously we have empathy. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I think there's times. I mean, imagine this. Imagine we were in a time of war and we were actually engaged in it. Sure. You and I. That we were actually going to have to. And people become barbaric. Like the recent stories we keep hearing about Hamas or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you think, okay, how do people hold babies hostage? Mm. All right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At that point, you'd be thinking, these people are so evil. Yeah. There will must only be for evil. That's a I mean, like, perfectly rational conclusion. It is, and and I think I think there is actually a time that people can go that far, mm-hmm. while while the potentiality of 
of like salvation in terms of God's freedom to offer love is sort of just a constant. Well, on the person side, they might have they might have bolted the door shut darn tight mm -hmm. through their sinning to where it's not that God can't get through them. Right. It's that they've that's what hardening means. They don't want him to. I mean, you think of hardening. You think of the hardening of the will. You think of like hardening of like metal or mm -hmm. the door of a wall. I'm going to make it as difficult as possible mm -hmm. for somebody to get in here, for God to get in here. Okay, so that's what, oh, that's what sin does. Like it repeat, repeated, and the bigger the violation, the more, the more that you're going to be welding the door mm -hmm. shut. Mm -hmm. And... And in those situations, something like total depravity, it's not technically true. Yeah. But experientially, it's analogically true. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, or it's, when you see somebody gone that far. So, I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't knock somebody, I guess, who sees something like that mm -hmm. and then describes it in such terms. I don't know that I'm like, so, when you make it a universal Right. Now you've you've changed things up. Um, we see what people can do in war. Mm -hmm. We know it's messed up. Could we all do that? Yes. Yes. Do we all do that? No. No. Right. Even back then. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. I, I've been rewatching Cobra Kai. Uh, no, on Netflix? No. Okay, so it's like the Karate Kid rebooted. Right, yeah. The whole yeah. story yeah. is this story, what I'm saying right now. Russo is practically the Christian story. And then the junk, yeah, not Cleese, Crease. And he's the hardened war veteran mm. who can't leave. He's imported his whole experience of war into the karate. But it's like pretty soon you've got all these people thinking, if we don't, if we don't stick up for ourselves, we're all going to die and get annihilated. I'm like, you live in the valley in California. I'm sure. pretty sure you're okay. This is what your mindset. Yeah, and it, it becomes, it becomes, uh, I mean, they portray him as sort of having PTSD. Yeah. And then, like, giving this to the kids. Well, you're living in a false reality. You're not, you're not recognizing the totality of your space. We're not saying nothing happened to you, but you're not recognizing the totality of the space you inhabit. Yeah. And, and that's important. But what's interesting in the whole Pelagius Augustine thing, and the, and the fact that He's writing City of God in the aftermath of Rome's not destruction, but it's, I mean, it's, a, horrible, it's a horrible time. Mm -hmm. If you and I compare this to Cobra Guy, oddly enough, or to, or to war, or to PTSD, mm -hmm. now oh, we can obviously see it. Like somebody who sees death, who, whose life uh, is likely going to be taken from them or... or or, or they see someone else's death, their mm -hmm. friend, mm -hmm. and they snap. And they either become dysfunctional, uh, highly unpredictable, in their behavior and um, outbursts or whatever. Whether it's safe to be around, you don't know. Whether they become aggressive and violent, you don't know. But in each one of those situations, you know what happened. Death. Mm -hmm. You don't. You don't go to your pastor and say, I think his original sin is worse than mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now we're getting to the to the distinction. Yes. We've arrived at the distinction. So created very good, not perfect. But what is the result of the sin? Well the the tree of life that kept him in a state of immortality. Mm -hmm. Again, that was conditional. They had to eat from it. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. It means there's an ongoing communal yes. nature to whether or not you keep ongoing living. Ongoing connection to God. Yeah, and it's and it's it's in the form of a meal, mm -hmm. which is it's just interesting. You're thinking of the Passover, I'm sure. I'm thinking of the Eucharist too. And eating is the most basic survival. Mm -hmm. Oh man, you think of we start thinking about what these things mean. Like, why do we even have food? Mm. Well. What does a baby know? I need my mother. What does that mean? She's my source of life. Mm -hmm. You cling to life. And what does God try to get to? I'm your life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He tries to get that through to us. 
And all of creation just keeps saying it all the time, screaming it sometimes. And then finally we get in little places where we're scared for our lives. And we're like, oh, God, save me. And that's, oh, there. Yes. Why can't you just be like that all the time? I know we've been at it for a while. Why then, when the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is eaten from against the timing of God, well, no, yeah. I don't want to say that. Against, against the command yeah. of God, it probably is. based on something to do with timing, the wrong timing. Yeah. Why are Fair. they why are they kicked out of the garden? Let's kind of, let's try and wrap up because I know we've been going for a okay, while. Okay. But why are so, they kicked out as a result? Well, one, we'll go back to Eve is um, Eve has this. Just focus on Eve for a second. Sure. Just think. She's the one who's got this communicative ability with nature mm. and with the serpent. And the serpent, uh, we said earlier that Eden is a is actually a temple. So their life is more like a liturgical life. And Christ is there in their midst. And this is a, a religious life. Mm. Paradise is a temple. Paradise is Christ. You can't have paradise without Christ. That's hell. Mm. But Eve, this intrusive presence of the serpent, well, serpents in general, like in, in stories like this, uh, in the ancient Near East, like they signify there's a an intrusive, divine-like presence shouldn't be here. Um, it's up to no good, and yet she's interacting. With it. Well, it's not really wrong if she's interacting with it. It's wrong that information that he that the serpent is giving out mm -hmm. did god really say she took it in she took it and that's a, that's so crazy of the, the the bad information it's both mm. it's both on one hand she should not have like you think you think of how temptation works mm -hmm. first there's like a thought then there's the consideration well, at the consideration level, you're sort of you're sort of comparing information that you have available to you. Mm -hmm. Now, once there's a contradiction in that between what you know is right and what you know is wrong, when you question it further and you side, you've now integrated with the certain. Mm -hmm. Like you now like. It's what are we? What Luciferian means? Integrated in mind and an activity now. In, in, and activity because mind is inherently physical. You do something, right? And so that is the break. That's yeah. the beginning of the break. And you got to think, what's motive here? Well, in the in the Western story, there's no motive. It doesn't make sense. That's They're already perfect. That's very true. That's very true. What's the motive? Like they already have everything. You're already perfect. It's a okay, formula. so what you want to be like? This is how it's usually portrayed. Yes. That God, that God, like the Adam and Eve wanted to become as God. Yes. A more proper translation, a more honest one, is as the gods. So it's interesting. By the time you get to like Saint Athanasius saying things like, "The reason for the incarnation is." That Christ became everything that man was so that man could become what Christ is as a creature with that distinction. So you go backwards, shows that they're reading Genesis this way, by the way. Mm -hmm. They want to become as the gods. What are the gods? That's a whole nother discussion. We don't believe in the gods in the Greek sense or the Egyptian mm -hmm. sense. It, Think of like, uh, okay, Adam is a terrestrial, mm -hmm. earthbound creature who's got this vocation. He's got to steward the earth. He's got to be a priest. He's a king. And Eve with him. And they're on a temple, mountain. Mm -hmm. So he's, Eden is not the whole earth. Outside Eden, like that's why he says, you've got to like, that's why the dominion maybe dominion. Right. is there. Make it well, like this. Well, if you already have dominion, you don't need to go get more dominion. <laughs> right. So, obviously, Eden is not 
the whole earth is not Eden. It's right there in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The modern conception is that the whole world the is whole Eden. world is perfect. Right? Well, that creates difficulties too. Yeah, of course it does. So again, it's these are like it's easy to take pot shots at, at right. Christians right. when you've got these ideas underneath. Well, let me let me just tell you. I mean, I read a, a Bible story about the creation to, to one of my kids tonight, and it's presented as comfort. You don't see a liturgical life being executed in a temple. You don't see that at all. All you see is paradise. Mm-hmm. You see a vacation scene. That's it. And this I, is I, a completely yeah. different trajectory from the word go for these kids. For us, and I'm 40, mm-hmm. so here I am just now trying to wrestle with the implications of, of this story. I grew up, and again, I'm not mad at anybody. All we're doing oh. is recognizing some inconsistencies, and we have questions. Again, when you think of the cultural impact of these stories, the fact is, it affects you. It affects you deeply. Mm-hmm. Again, we're already showing a little bit of how it's affected us. I'm somebody who, at least at one time, could have claimed to have listened to more John Piper than probably anybody but the people who went to his church. And John Piper's a Reformed Baptist pastor who... I, I gotta say, like, he is a phenomenal speaker. He's, his best sermons, by, by the way, are biographies. Mm. They're most motivating of all. Mm. He does one on St. Athanasius, too. I remember this time, he gets a question about if God has predestined my sin, like, what should that my attitude towards my sin be? Well, it's a great question. Well, it's like, it, but it's like a question that leaves you in a pit yeah like what do you mean god chose my sins and what he's gonna make me feel guilty too and psychologically messed up wait wait but you have hope you have to like hope in christ i'm like okay i am hoping in christ Did he pre- yeah he does that too wait a minute why can't you just let me relax you're articulating my 20s right now my early 20s right now <laughs> when you take the very good not perfect meant for becoming uh-huh. meant to grow up like a child like we talked about yeah. you don't make up arbitrary rules for your children you but you do wait for them to mature right you know that at a stage in their life you have to do everything to protect them yeah but it's a, but along the way you're trying to make them independent mm-hmm. not independent of you totally mm-hmm. you don't want them isolated from you when they're older it's to it's to make them much more like you. Mm. You want to make them as stable and as independent as you, and at the same time to keep that relationship. Yep. And there's an element of freedom. Yeah. Both to people. choose to number one create and also number two reciprocate love from the child to the father and the yeah. mother from the father. And the mother to the child. Yeah. There's a real element of freedom there that is also, you know, freedom of choice is a huge mm-hmm. sticking point in a lot of Christian theology. Yeah. You know, where does that end? Where does it begin? Obviously, there's degrees of freedom uh, in terms of, well, you have freedom to choose this, but not that. And it's it's boundaried for sure. But, you know, yeah. some people are very deterministic. Some yeah. Christian theology is very deterministic. Yeah, it just is. And that creates intellectual it creates rational it creates frankly it creates very basic emotional problems and we have to deal with them yeah and there has to be consistency in a way that fosters love rather than squashes it and unfortunately we believe that these over systemizations just utterly squash love and we know that that can't be i have a firm conviction that if a belief system is not conceptually, I'm not saying you, you figure it out, you have it worked out, you know it exhaustively, but if it creates so many levels of dissonance in your head that you have to return to them over and over, over and over. Yeah. If we're talking about God, that shouldn't be happening. Right. I, I get that the wicked are going to have these... Uh, 
mm-hmm. these uh, labyrinths to, to never get out of them. But mm-hmm. for his children, I don't think he makes it that way. Right. You go back to the story and you think, God chose this. Well, then what's that mean for evil? Right. He chose evil. Okay, so now is God the author of evil? Well, no, 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 no. He didn't do that. He didn't go that far. Fine, he didn't. But even if I just take you for your word, how's that work? Yeah. How's that work? Well, we don't know. It's a mystery. mystery. Like, well, (laughs) that's not a mystery. That's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. You can't call contradictions mysteries. Right. And get out of it. No. Yes. Like a mystery is the incarnation. Right. How does God become man through the combination and the union of the human and the divine? That's a mystery. Yes. But the fact remains. Yeah, but but but, but like there's at least your imagination to say yes. impossible, impossible. Right. You kinda get it. You you kinda know what it's like to be you know what it's like to be sort of possessed by a spirit. Mm-hmm. Not I don't mean in a negative sense, I mean like to be motivated internally, suddenly, oh. so forth, to, to where you feel like you're one with this thing or it's idea like, yeah, or person yeah. or, or, or your church or, or music or whatever. You know you, you know it's like to sort of be in unison all right. of a sudden, but you know that you're different from the thing that you're in unison with. Yeah. Okay, that's a you know long way away from incarnation, but like at least you can kind of get it. Yeah. Okay. There's a groundwork. Yeah, it, it, it's true to life. Yeah. You think of some of these other things, you're like, I don't freaking get that. I just think that's not any idea. Yeah, you're just left confused and angry and sad. It makes you end up redefining God's love. Right. If I would think about God's love, it would be in terms of election. Mm-hmm. But then when you start thinking, like, why didn't you choose everybody else? Right. Oh, well, that's kind of for me, too. Right. I'm like, well, huh? For Christmas, I didn't want all the reprobate to suffer. <laughs> if that's what I need. Yeah. I don't know how many times I used to think when something really hard would happen. Something painful or something like troubling. I would think, this must be what I need. Mm. Yeah, who would have thought very good versus perfect made that much difference? It is all the difference in the world. It know? really is. And we, we need to explore some of those implications. Uh, I think that was a good concept that we drew out uh, from the idea of original sin in the garden versus um, this idea of death being instructive for for where we're going practically again we this is new for us we kind of need all the help we can get in zooming in on some of these very particular questions we appreciate everybody hanging in there with us tonight Um, and we will continue to explore these and many other ideas in the future We'll talk to you next time.